Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Equality, it's, it's a word we like to use a lot, and it's a word that's sadly very vague today. And equality seems to apply to so many of us. Except for, you know, those bothersome little creatures that seem to show up in women's wombs sometimes. And they seem to just get in the way of things, so let's just abort them. Or maybe equality should apply to them. Maybe they are actually just as human as you and I are. Okay, some of you who know me might question how human I am. But other than that, (laughs) you probably think that we are pretty much human. Well... My guest today has been doing this kind of research into a pro-life movement since he was 18 years old. Josh Brom is a co-founder and president of Equal Rights Institute, a national pro-life organization dedicated to helping pro-life advocates think clearly, reason honestly, and argue persuasively. He's worked in the pro-life movement since he was 18. After 12 years of full-time pro-life work, he launched Equal Rights Institute to maximize his impact for movement. A star after a speaker, he has spoken for more than 23,000 people in five countries. Josh's primary passion is helping pro-life people be more persuasive when they communicate with pro-choice people. That means ditching faulty rhetoric and tactics and embracing arguments that hold up under philosophical scrutiny. He's been happily married to his wife, Hannah, for f- 13 years. They have three sons, Noah, William, and Eli. They live in Charlotte, North Carolina. David Barrett, the National Director of Four Days for Life, sums up Josh's expertise this way. Josh Brom is one of the high, brightest, most articulate, and innovative people in the pro-life movement. His cutting-edge work is his cutting-edge work is helping people think more clearly, communicate more effectively, and more importantly, be better ambassadors for Christ. I wholeheartedly endorse Josh's work, and I encourage you to join me in following Josh and getting involved in his work today. In Charlotte, North Carolina, she happens to be my old stomping grounds. I used to live there for a while, but Josh, oh, nice. welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, thanks, Nick. It's great to be on here with you. In fact, I was enjoying, as I was reading your website, I told you right before we started, not only was I impressed by all of my heroes who have endorsed your work, but I also, I really loved what you wrote about why you named the podcast Deeper Waters, about wanting to help Christians get kind of out, out of the shallow end of the pool, if you will. Um, and into deeper waters. So I felt like, oh, I've got this connection with mm-hmm. Nick because that's kind of what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. in the pro-life movement is how to help pro-life people to kind of go from yep. the shallow end into uh, deeper uh, thinking. So it is great to be on with you, and I'm I'm looking forward to today. My wife, in some ways, thinks the name is a bit ironic because <laughs> actually, as much as I'm super logical in many areas, I'm also very terrified of water. And so it says you're terrified of water, and yet you have a ministry named Deeper Waters. Yeah. Okay. I I think it works. I don't know if you've ever, if you've gotten into the Enneagram at all, but I'm in Enneagram 6, and and those are known for being fearful, anxious creatures. So no one expects Mm. an apologist to have any fear or anxiety issues, but hey, it's just how God wired me, and it just Mm. means that when we do outreaches, that's an act of courage. It doesn't Mm. come naturally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if my audience doesn't know much about you, tell us a bit how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah. So um, I've been pro-life my whole life. I was homeschooled. I grew up in a, in, a, in a lovely Christian home. And my dad took me to an abortion clinic when I was 11. 
and no one had told me what abortion was. Um, and so at first I was just bored. It was just like five guys outside this ugly brick building in downtown Sacramento, California. And, um, and so later that day I would have this conversation with my parents about what that was all about. And they told me what abortion was. Um, and I went through a series of three emotions. So first I felt very surprised that anyone would do that. That was kind of my, my cultural bubble got pierced for the first time that day. I was confronting real sin for the first time. Mm. Um, and then I felt very sad about the topic. And then lastly, I kind of got this rising sense of, well, I guess I'm going to have to stop that when I grow up. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I read uh, uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith had just put out his first book on abortion, um, Politically Correct Death. So I read that. I didn't understand half of it. I was only 11. Mm -hmm. um, but I read that. And then we got some tapes from really the first guy to bring apologetics to the pro-life movement, um, a guy named Scott Klusendorf. Mm -hmm. um, so we had some early Scott Klusendorf tapes. And I listened to those so many times, Nick. I, 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 I wore them out. I memorized his arguments. I memorized his jokes. Um, and I was telling people at, at 11 that I was going to be a pro-life speaker when I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I turned 18, I got involved with a Teens for Life group. Um, I ended up starting one in Atlanta, Georgia, which I think that's where you are now, right? Yep, living in, yep. in Cummings, just outside of Atlanta. So I was so I was living in, in Ackworth or just outside Marietta at the time. Um, mm -hmm. and I would have, uh, So I started a, a Teens for Life group in Marietta um, and did that for a few years, started just speaking at youth groups and things like that. Um, and then I got hired by Georgia Right to Life, and so I moved up to the Duluth area, um, and I worked for them for about three years. Um, and then um, I took a job in Fresno, California, by a group called Right to Life Central California. I worked for there for about six years. That's where I started podcasting um, and started kind of growing and speaking mm -hmm. and, and writing. Um, started having my own ideas, really, probably for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and then five and a half years ago, I launched Equal Rights Institute. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of the idea here, or at least a short version, um, is I, I wanted there to be a flexible, innovative apologetics organization focused on the pro-life issue. Um, and so we're really interested in R&D and research and development. Mm -hmm. So truth doesn't change, but culture does. Um, and so what that means is that the arguments that are actually persuasive, not just true, but actually change people's minds, are going to sometimes change with culture. Mm -hmm. um, Gen Z, just like they process information, they process data psychologically really differently than Gen X does. And so we're interested in both what is true, of course, but also what is persuasive. So when we go on to college campuses, that's kind of our main lab. We're trying things out. I've got a Google Doc full of ideas, you know, things that um, we haven't tried enough times to get a sense of, is this working really well or not? And when we find things that are working, then we can kind of instantly tell the people that are, who are following us on our, on our blog or our podcast or our courses or whatever. And so we're just trying to figure out what's working um, and help the pro-life movement to become more like Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, what, what would it look like if Jesus talk to a pro-choice person? Like, what would his body language be like? What kinds of questions would he ask? What would he not ask? Mm -hmm. And what would it sound like when he made arguments that are, you know, uh, you know, they're grounded in truth, but they are spoken with grace and gentleness. We want to help the pro-life movement to become more like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I recognize the names that you mentioned. We'd love to have Scott Klusendorf on the show sometimes, just as you can imagine, he's an extremely busy guy. He is. But we have had Francis Beckwith 
Oh, he's before. great. Yeah. He is great. Not only is he great, he's a riot entirely. He is one of the funniest apologists mm. in the world. Like, 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 you don't get that from his writing, but when you listen mm. to his speeches, mm. um, he he did a talk on relativism at um. Uh, actually down in, in Atlanta at an apologetics conference at William Lane Craig's church. And it was so hilarious. And he's great in person, too. One of my mm-hmm. favorite, uh, I think, moments in my career was a couple of years ago. I spoke at um, at, a, at, a, at a college in Colorado, not realizing at the time that's where Frank Beckwith was teaching at the time. And so I did a, fall, a bodily rights talk and he came and just graciously sat in on it. And I was like, that just like raised the stakes, you know, like, oh, my gosh, this is like. Mm-hmm you know, a garage band playing in front of Metallica or something like that. And so, and he asked questions during Q&A and we kind of interacted and he's just a really gracious person. And, you know, like the, the work that we're doing, we are trying to innovate, but we're not wanting to reinvent the wheel just for the sake of reinventing the wheel. There are certain things that come from, uh, like it's like that old idea, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And, and there are still things that Beckwith worked on that we still use because it's still the most effective thing we found in certain cases. Um, there's things that Scott Klusendorf um, has come up with that we still use. We're, we're only trying to come up with new things when we're finding, you know, older ideas that just aren't working as well with young people. Yeah, I remember hearing Francis Beckworth speak at the National Conference on Christian Projects. It was around the time that Erdogan's show was on, and mm. she had just announced her coming out of a closet. And he said, yeah, I was watching this episode where it was taking place, and I was switching back and forth between that and Star Trek regularly. So I guess you could say <laughs> I was watching two shows, Boldy Going, where no man's gone before. <laughs> oh, I just lost it there. That that sounds like Frank. Well, let's start jumping into a topic. Uh, yeah. we've, uh, we've recently had this front page and center here with... Uh, Michelle Williams at the Golden Globes, you know, holding yeah. that little golden statue, so ironically, and talking about how abortion made it necessary. Well, because of abortion, she was, like yeah, that. because of abortion, she was able to get that award. I mean, what are you thinking when you not only watch that, but you see all the Hollywood elites applauding that? Yeah, so there were several thoughts that went through my mind, and, and so and I'll admit I wasn't like I, I didn't watch the video right away because mm-hmm. it, it, sometimes this thing happens where a celebrity says something about abortion and like all the pro-lifers jump on it, and when that happens, I'm just like less likely to like I'm just like mm-hmm. I feel like probably what is already uh, what, what there is to say has probably already been said, um, and then a, a good friend of mine in the pro-life movement reached out and just said like Would you say something because her concern was the, the way a lot of pro-life people were responding um, lacked a lot of grace um, and charity. There were people mocking Michelle Williams and um, or, or there was a meme going around that wasn't particularly helpful. And so I was like, all right. So I watched the video um, and my reaction was I was I was sad for her. I'm always sad when I hear women who talk about having an abortion because mm-hmm. Even if they're not talking about it, often those people feel um, a lot of guilt at some point, not usually right away. Um, and, and maybe Michelle Williams hasn't at this point. Um, that's possible. A lot of times it starts when that person ends up having kids later. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but um, so I felt sadness for her um, that, like, you know, presumably she felt like she had to make this choice for the sake of her career. There's this really great quotation from a, um, a pro-life um, 
speaker, uh, Frederica Matthews Green, who, who I'm going to, uh, uh, it's not exactly word for word, but he basically says women don't want an ice cream like, like they want an ice cream cone. They want it the way a bear gnaws off its own foot when it's caught in a trap, like to get out of the trap. And so presumably, like, you know, I imagine just like on college campuses, like uh, um, the number one age demographic of women having abortions are on college campuses. It's, it's not as much like everyone thinks it's teenagers mm-hmm. and it's, it's primarily college students because colleges make it terribly difficult to remain a student, like finish your education and and have a child. Um, and I imagine similarly, like actresses are probably in the same boat or, or models, like any, any career that's like based on your looks or at least you look in a certain way for, let's say, a period of three or six or nine months where you're shooting a movie. Um, like there's real pressures there. Now, mm-hmm. having said that, um, I, I, I have to say I do think that Michelle Williams is culpable for the fact that she just promoted um, voting to keep abortion legal in front of a very big audience, not just live there. Like, I, I don't know how many people watch the Oscars anymore or the Golden Globes or whatever. It's, I mean, I imagine they had, I feel like anytime Ricky Gervais hosts it, there's more viewers than probably when he doesn't. But mm-hmm. um, there's, there's a lot of people watching this. Um, and you saw, as just as you said, a lot of Hollywood celebrities ap- applaud this thing. And obviously that's gross, but I generally think that these are people that are not educated about this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, me, like, I, I think they know what abortion roughly is, but I don't think that they believe that abortion does what I believe it does. I believe it kills a person like you or me, like a valuable human being, um, in my view, made in God's image. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think there's secular ways to to parse out why humans would be valuable too, but uh, I, I, I they don't think it does that. They think that um, abortion, you know, probably removes a body part. It's like having a mole removed, or or maybe it kills a what could have been a human one day, but it's not a human right now. So it's not the big of a deal. Um, and so, you know, I think there's just an, there's an ignorance there. But it's always sad anytime you see. You know, it's just like I, I'm bummed any time a celebrity says anything about the subject. Because typically it, there's not the very many pro-life ones. And most of the time when a celebrity does say something pro-life, I don't think they say it very well. Um, like the first time Donald Trump spoke about this, when he ran for office the first time, he did a CBN interview. Uh, and he just made a really like I, like the worst argument for the pro-life position he basically made. And it's like, ah. Um, but then most times the celebrities talk about this, obviously they're on the pro-choice side and like people pay way too much attention to what celebrities think. Like it was actually really ironic that Michelle Williams did this whole political thing, like not what an hour after Ricky Gervais in his intro said, no one talk about politics because no one cares. You go um, to school I, less than Greta Thunberg has. Right. And, and I hope that's true. I hope Ricky Gervais is right that no one cares. Um, and it was interesting when I, when I watched the YouTube click, I, I watched it on like, you know, NBC's YouTube channel. And most of the comments were very negative. Um, and so like that was, I guess, encouraging. Like maybe people aren't taking celebrities' op- opinions as 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 you know seriously as they used to, but um, it's always sad when you see a group of people 
applauding abortion. When um, in and I just have a really long answer. I'll wrap it up. Um, in the I think that the 2016 um, DNC, like the National DNC, um, you th- there was a video that went around of I don't remember who it was, but someone um, kind of celebrating that she had an abortion, and like the entire room applauds. There's just something really gross. Um, about that. I mean, I think a lot of pro-choice people who are not extremists um, look at that and they cringe a bit too. Like mm-hmm. most people are not extremists on abortion. They might think it it should be legal, but it shouldn't be happening like nearly as often. It's not a thing to celebrate. It's a thing to look down on. There is still a stigma to it. So anyway, those were my thoughts uh, about the subject. And one of the things that baffles my mind about this is the way women do this because they say they don't want to be taken advantage of by men repeatedly. But abortion just, as far as I'm concerned, it aids the Harvey Weinsteins of the world yeah. all the more because, hey, we can do what we want and we don't get consequences. We don't get stuck with child support or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said. It, it's something that's not talked about enough. Like, it, it, you, like the early feminists understood this. Um, the feminists in the you know like the, the the 20s, 30s, and 40s, you know, they were typically all pro-life because they understood exactly what you just said. Abortion is like a great tool for men who want to use women as sex objects, mm. um, and they and not wanting to take responsibility. Um, and there's a there there was a study done. Now I don't know how big the study was, and so kind of always take something like that with some salt. Um, but the, if the study is accurate, then 64% of women having abortions felt quote unquote coerced into the abortion. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that she was like literally dragged into the abortion clinic by her hair, obviously, but means that she was pressured um, probably by either her parents or the boyfriend, the jerk boyfriend, saying, like, I'm gonna break up with you if you don't have this abortion. And of course, there are there are occasions where it's even his parents um, or, you know, God forbid, a pastor or a youth pastor or something like that. Um, but like that happens too. But so like a lot of women aren't, this is not what they're wanting to choose. They're feeling pressured, if not by her circumstances, certain uh, by people um, around her, and a lot of times it's a it's a boyfriend. And I think if men would stand up, kind of step up to the plate and take responsibility and say, "All right, um, that maybe this wasn't what we wanted, but here we are. Um, this is a human. This matters, um, and so I'm going to take care of you. We're 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 going to you know we're we're going to take care of this child together." I think a lot fewer women would have abortions. Um, so, yeah, if we want to, you know, um, encourage a society to be one where um, men aren't just ditching their girlfriends as soon as he gets pregnant and, and there's more, you know, a kind of equality of opportunity, um, well, a- abortion's not helping in that way. I think abortion is helping men to um, shirk responsibility. Yeah. I like to bring up that there was a blog that was done when Texas was having a vote done on a law about abortion. A guy named Ben Sherman wrote about encouraging why this law hurts men who love women. And one of the points he brings out is, men, your sex life is at stake. Thank you for getting it right from the open for everyone to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like yeah, that's a thing that is certainly going on in the minds of a lot of uh, jerky boyfriends. Mm-hmm. Um, but few of them say that out loud. Yeah. Now I noticed you brought Trump making the worst pro-life argument. Yeah. I didn't see it, so I don't know. But on the other hand, I have been pleased that the judges he's appointed to the Supreme Court yes. have been pro-life. Me too. 
I agree with that. Um, I, and I wasn't expecting that. I was not expecting Trump to keep his promises to the pro-life movement. And, and for the most part, he has. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I, 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 although I would prefer, and it's kind of too late for this, I think, um, but I would prefer that our society does not connect the pro-life movement with Trump mm-hmm. um, because of the way that he has treated women in the past, much less other things that he's done. Like he's, just, he's just not a good um, you know, a moral figure. So I'm, I, 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 the way I feel about it now, it's kind of, it's kind of like there's this line from Fiddler on the Roof. Where it's like, God bless the czar, but keep him far away from us. That's kind of how I feel. It's like, I, I, I'm glad for the judges, but would you please, like, don't come to the March for Life. Like, I don't want you connected to the pro-life movement. Um, and I think it's probably already a bit too late. Um, but, but all that to say, um, I, I, I agree with you. The, the argument that he made that I was referencing, the, the worst pro-life argument, um, is, is we, we call it the Beethoven argument. Mm-hmm. And it usually goes something like this. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, uh, abortion is wrong and it should be illegal because think of all the potential Beethovens that have been killed. And so we haven't been able to hear these symphonies that could have come been composed. So I guess in maybe a more modern, you know, think of the mm-hmm. John Williams or Hans Zimmer's mm-hmm. uh, that, that have been killed or the, or the person, a lot of times you'll also hear what, well, you know, maybe cancer could have been cured by now. Um, in fact, I actually saw this in like, a, there's like the youth pastors will sometimes buy these like, or, or more pastors even will buy like sermon illustration books. And it's like, a, like you can get this at like Christian bookstores. Um, if those are still around, I guess on maybe they get them on Amazon now. But it's just like, you know, it's like a book with like a hundred uh, interesting or inspirational or funny stories. And I just remember a long time ago, I was in a Christian bookstore and flipping through one of these and I saw uh, abortion was like, they're, they're all arranged by topic. Um, so it's like, if you're going to preach on this topic, then here's maybe a story you can draw it. And, um, and, and they had this, they had this story, like for youth pastors, if you talk about abortion, use the story. And this is like this made up story, obviously made up, of this guy dies of cancer and he goes to the pearly gates where of course St. Peter is there, where he always is apparently. And he asks the guy, you know, is there anything you want to ask? And the guy's like, why did I die of cancer? Why didn't you send, why did not God send someone to cure cancer? And St. Peter, or maybe it's God, I don't remember, looks at him and I think it's God because he says like, I did, but you aborted him. Okay, so there's all these problems with this argument. One, this works on both sides. And I've seen pro-choice people point this out before. Okay, yeah, maybe future composers or cancer curers have been aborted, but also probably future rapists or murderers have also been killed. Um, But more importantly, this actually plays into the pro-choice mindset. Uh, Because, (coughs) excuse me, I'm getting over a cold I've had for like a month and a half now. it's the it's the pro-life view that says that human value is intrinsic mm-hmm. instead of instead of instrumental intrinsic value meaning you are valuable because of the kind of thing we are uh, made in God's image um, and the pro-choice mindset is that your value is instrumental meaning it's based on what you can do um, functionally or or maybe what you offer to society um, and so if we say you know, abortion so wrong because of the things that they might have done down the road, we play into the pro-choice mindset. Um, and we shouldn't do that. We should say abortion's wrong regardless of what that person would have done because it's killing an innocent human person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
I remember the first time I heard that argument. And argument, first time I heard it, it did have some punch yeah. to it. It does make sense intuitively. Certainly. And there is a great possibility of, you know, we could have done that. But it is also treating people on a functional level, as if where you'd be valuable if you were Beethoven, but what if you were Joe Blow sitting in the apartment down the street? Right. Well, maybe you're not as valuable. I mean, this was actually... I saw a clip of Matt Dillahunty recently, I think, on Unbelievable. Yeah. You know this clip I'm talking about, I take it. No, but I'm familiar with, 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 with Matt Dillahunty. He was asked about this kind of question, like, are, are human beings worthy of value? Are human beings valuable? Something like that. And he just kind of sits there, and he's not able to answer the question as mm. well, which I mean, it, it, it strikes me as a major problem for any worldview if you... I mean, it seems like so many people want to say, yes, our human life is valuable, our human life is good. Okay, why? And um, um, they, they don't always know. I mean, I'm glad they've got the right conclusion, but they don't always have the best, best reasons. Yeah, and, and and they don't always feel like they need to give one, which is which is mm-hmm. kind of an interesting thing. So uh, we're very, uh, very friendly with um, the people who work at Secular Pro-Life. Um, which I think is a very important organization. Like we, mm-hmm. we, we need for pro-choice atheists to understand that you can be pro-life even if you're not a Christian. Um, I obviously, I want them to become a Christian too, assuming Christianity is true. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, becoming Christian and pro-life in one day is a lot for most people. So um, I, I like what Scott Klusendorf says here about um, our pro-life conversations being sort of pre-evangelistic. Um, and so... Uh, but a lot of my friends in secular pro-life, uh, who, whom you know we partner with and, and work with, they don't really feel like they need to answer the question why humans matter. They like they feel like like they said this is the thing that Christians talk about all the time, and atheists don't talk about. It. They just kind of assume it, um, and like it, they're working from like, look, it's wrong to kill humans. Uh, the unborn are humans, so it's like it's pretty obvious. Whereas. Um, a lot of times Christian apologists are very interested in, go- in going deeper, like, hey, help me understand, Sam Harris, why exactly, you know, mm. um, is, is you know, your version of utilitarianism uh, true? Um, and so it's, just, it's kind of an interesting talking past each other thing that sometimes happens. Okay, so let's talk about that issue some about how you said that everyone's equally human. And, you know, this is the interview. While I agree with you, I do at the same time have to grill you in some ways. So I got to say, you know. Okay, convinced me because you know you got this little tiny cell. It starts off yeah. as a zygote. It doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have a brain. If you looked at it on its face, you probably couldn't tell it from any other cell unless you were True. a really scared specialist. Why on earth do I think that thing is a human? Well, so I think the first thing here is we got to define what you mean by human. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is an area where pro-life and pro-choice people miss each other all the time. Um, uh, My instinct when you say human is to think uh, that you mean biologically human. But that's because we've trained ourselves to be careful of this. So because pro-choice people, that's often what they mean. Um, Do you mean biologically human, like a member of our species? Or do you mean a, like something more philosophical, like a valuable person um, that has rights? Um, I'm assuming you meant person, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have you clarify before I try to answer your question. Are you? Let's do you mean biologically both. human? Let's go okay, with let's both. Okay, let's do both. Okay, so why should we believe that the, the cell is biologically human, and then we'll talk about person it? Um, mm-hmm. So biologically human is fairly straightforward. Um, to, uh, human zygotes happen. 
um, at least you know, when it happens naturally, that it happens when two humans have sex. Um, they, they reproduce. Um, and things generally reproduce after their own kind. Um, if you test um, this new organism's DNA, it's going to have a uniquely DNA, uh, it's going to have a uniquely human DNA fingerprint. Um, and if you let it grow, you're going to not be surprised when at birth it turns out to be human. Like no one's surprised, like, no one's like curious on the day of the birth. Like I wonder what it's going to be. Like we all know, we, we all understand this is a human um, and, and we don't change species um, because we don't live in the X-Men universe. <laughs> like this is like, this is, it is what it is. Um, I think the most, the far more interesting part of the debate is the philosophical one. Um, is this a valuable human or is it a human that could potentially become a person later if it uh, happened to, you know, continue to live or maybe be allowed to live? Um, and this is where I think um, a part of the very interesting part of the abortion debate is. Um, and so the direction that we go um, is different than what we used to do. You know, uh, there's a pro-life argument um, that we used to use that we just we ended up finding something that worked a lot better. We heard J.P. Moreland at, at Biola, who's a brilliant philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, say this interesting thing. And um, in, uh, this is even before ERI began, um, ECORI Institute began. We, we started testing it on campuses all over the country. Uh, did a lot of this work with Justice for All. Um, and we just found this argument to be so much more persuasive than what we'd been doing before. And so um, I'll kind of like, uh, kind of show you the way that this usually goes. This is how I would answer if someone said, like, why, why do you believe this, you know, zygote is a person? Um, I would actually take a short break from talking about the unborn um, and get on common ground um, and mm-hmm. talk about what this person probably cares a lot about, which is equality. Um, like the number one thing that young people care about today um, is say, okay, like, look around. Um, we, uh, we, you know, I say we can see dozens and dozens of people right now. Like, I, I believe, I have this interesting view. I think that all of those people have an equal right to life. Um, but if you think about it, that's a kind of a weird view because there's a lot of differences, right? Some of these people are tall. Some of them are short. Some of them are really smart. Some of them are not. Um, some of them maybe are good at music or sports or something. And, and some of them are, are not. Um, some of them have different, you know, maybe disabilities, right? And some don't. Um, but basically everyone with a few exceptions in Western civilization agrees that they have an equal right to life. So how can we explain that idea when there's so many differences? I think there's got to be something that they all have equally. There's something that, that makes that, that they all have this, like the same about them and, 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 the way that I explain this with most pro-choice people, um, unless we go really philosophical, is I'm just going to say, I think that that the answer to that question, that, that what is the thing that we all have equally, is something like humanness. Um, it's something like um, having a, a human nature. And um, if that's the right answer, then that I think that explains a lot of data about the world. But it also, um, I think, helps us when we think about less clear cases like the unborn. Because if, if the thing that grounds equality is having a human nature, and if the unborn have that, which they totally do, even from the zygote stage, then the unborn get an equal right to life, regardless of what our gut intuition is about it. And I always say, like, notice, this is not a religious argument. It's also not an emotional argument. I'm not pro-life for emotional reasons. 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't get the warm fuzzies when I look at a picture of a zygote. Um, I'm pro-life because it's the most rational conclusion I can come to. Um, because I'm starting with equality and I'm reasoning from there. I'm following truth where it leads. I'm not doing ad hoc backwards reasoning like a lot of people do. Where it's like they figure out the conclusion that they want to end up with and they figure out, okay, they walk backwards. It's like Google Maps logic. Like, you know, here's the here's where I want to end up. Here's my destination. Now, what premises do I need to construct to make sure I end up with the conclusion I want? Well, we don't want to do that. You make all kinds of uh, mistakes or fallacies that way. Instead, we want to follow truth where it leads. And I've yet to hear a good reason to discriminate against the unborn. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the starting place that I would start with a pro-choice person who's wanting to understand why do I think even zygos uh, are, have an equal right to life? I, don't have, I think that they have a human nature, and I think human nature is the thing that matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I agree with that, but you know, there are so many questions yeah. here in this area because I mean, some even in medieval times, there was a lot of talk about quickening. When does a soul enter the body? And mm -hmm. as Christians, we most of us, I mean, there are some anthropological monists, but most of us believe in some kind of soul. But then you have things like, okay, well, this is supposedly a soul, but then it does something like twinning, mm -hmm. for instance. Or, well, let's just start with twinning. How can something have a soul and a mind to some extent and twin. But before I answer that, could you explain what twinning is also for yeah. my audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and Frank Beckwith talks about this in his book. So, so twinning um, is a thing that can happen within the first 14 days after conception or fertilization happens, um, where, um, I, mean, I mean, obviously there are two ways that twins can happen. But in, in this case, you have a, a zygote. Um, that has begun to develop, and so it's now an embryo. Um, and at some point in the first 14 days, uh, while it's still a like a, a, a blastocyst, um, it splits into two um, embryos. And occasionally, um, the two can actually end up becoming one again. Uh, the one can absorb the other too sometimes. Um, and so you've got this twinning and, and recombination thing that can happen. Um, this is the reason, by the way, when... Um, they were kind of creating, um, they were drawing lines about embryonic stem cell research, um, uh, you know, years and years ago. This is why they drew the line. They said you could not do embryonic stem cell research after 14 days mm -hmm. because scientists were saying it's clearly not an individual yet because we don't even know how many individuals are there. It could, in theory, split into two and maybe recombine back into one. So clearly there's no problem with cutting it up for its parts for research. Mm -hmm. um, and my basic view here is God created some organisms to be able to do this. So flatworms can do this. If you split a flatworm in two, um, you end up with two flatworms. And that's just really weird. And I don't know. There's a lot of weird things in nature. Um, and uh, so, you know, my assumption is um, at this point, you end up with, with two souls at that point. Um, and that sometimes one of the souls dies if, if there's a recombination, just like miscarried children die all the time. Um, I, that's kind of my assumption of what's going on there. Maybe there are some theolo uh, theologists who would, who would disagree with that or, or theologians who <laughs> would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd be open to their view. It's, it, just, it seems weird to me to think that ensoulment happens sometime after 
the organism begins to biologically live, like that the soul gets added later, like there's an, in, an injection of soul, like that just feels very weird. And so I'm just assuming that there's a soul as soon as you have a living organism, which is at fertilization. There's no real debate about that. Yeah. Like 94% of embryologists all agree on this. And most of them are pro-choice atheists. Mm -hmm. But it's like, yeah, we agree on the biology side. They just don't think it's a person, right? They think that her bodily autonomy would trump it, even if it is a person. Those are like the two interesting big disagreements in the, in the pro-life pro-choice debate. Hi, this is Justin Briley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast, recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work. Yeah, I find it very interesting that we live in a culture that says science is king science is a way to knowing all truth yeah. everything has to be proved scientifically philosophy doesn't matter philosophy is just kids playing a kiddie right. pool you don't need to use philosophy except until we get to the big three abortion homosexuality and transgenderism then all of a sudden philosophy becomes king and science takes a back seat yeah, it's almost like sometimes people have these biases and just believe what they want to believe. No. No. <laughs> it's almost like that. So, yeah, so this is an area where like, we can definitely pull the, the science card um, on, on people. So that, that's my basic view on, 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 on twinning. What about if we have cases of children that are born, say, we can tear through x-rays and that they're going to be, they won't have brains when they're mm. born or that it's unhealthy for a mother to even deliver yeah. the child. What do we do in those cases? Yeah. Uh, that's a, those, those are really good questions, Nick. So let's, let's split this up into a couple of different things. So I'm going to um, begin by um, putting any cases where the mother's life would be at risk. I'm going to put that on the, on the table temporarily. We'll talk about that as a separate thing. Okay. Uh, Let's start by talking about babies. So what you described is a medical condition called anencephaly. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just this really, really tragic, severe um, developmental problem where the child uh, is not growing a brain, sometimes also a brain stem. Um, they don't usually live until birth, but if they do, they won't survive typically long afterwards. There's also um, um, some of the trisomy um, conditions are also similarly like very, very debilitating. And it's, it's, it, it happens that they live um, long after birth, but it's extremely rare. Mm -hmm. um, and so assuming it's not a, a very significant like health risk to the woman, um, but, we, but let's just say that we know um, for certain that the baby is going to die shortly after birth, which is actually these cases are not that clear cut. There are children that have survived longer than that. But let's just say it was more clear cut for the sake of argument. Um, my view is that we should treat disabled people with dignity. So we should obviously give them palliative care. We don't want them suffering, mm. obviously. Um, but like, how do we treat disabled people? We love them. We try to help them. We don't kill them. Um, there's this really amazing YouTube video that people should look up um, called Choosing Thomas. Um, and I'm going to spoil it, but people should watch it anyway. It's amazing. It's not a pro-life video. It's like a, um, I think it had, I think it was in Colorado. This local news crew was mm -hmm. amazingly allowed to film 
this journey, this tragic journey that a couple had who whose baby was diagnosed with, I think it was trisomy 13, if I remember right, but it's, it's been a while since I watched the video. It was one of the trisomies. And, um, and so the child lives until birth. Um, to, you know, they document, you know, the doctors describe, you know, like kind of preparing a very complicated birth plan. If this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. Um, the childbirth, you know, the, 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 the baby Thomas is born. Um, and baby Thomas lives long enough to go home and kind of go to hospice care. It's kind of like we're just going to do hospice care um, for as long as the baby lives, which ultimately ended up being one or two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very, very emotional video um, to to watch. But there's an interesting thing that happens at the end. So after the baby passes away, um, they show the funeral. They show this this you know this little coffin. It's just it's awful. Um, Finally, for the first time at the end, is abortion mentioned? Mm-hmm. And the dad says, a lot of people asked why we didn't terminate. And he answers, we didn't terminate because he's our son. Mm-hmm. He's our son. And, and I think that this is the way that we should, we should think about the situation. Obviously, it's tragic. There's nothing wrong or abnormal with parents, you know, wanting a quote unquote perfect child, if such a thing exists. Um, or at least a healthy child, you know, but um, we live in a in a fallen world where people get sick, where people die all the time. Um, and and that's really sad. So we do our best. Um, and so so that's that's my view on, you know, situations like that. So but then if if the mother's life is at risk, I think now we have a different situation. Um, the, the calculus is different because I think um, if her life's at risk, obviously, if we can, you know, we want to help both. So we should treat mother and child both as patients, as medical patients. Um, but if there is no way to save the baby by doing like a C-section, even if it's a premature. So imagine a case where the mother, the, 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 the problem is the mother has cancer. Let's say she's got cancer in her uterus. Um, and, you know, uh, cancer sometimes or certain kinds of cancer, if it goes untreated, can spread. Um, and so, you know, uh, if, if they can get rid of the cancer by, you know, re, you know, removing the cancer, you know, quickly before it spreads, they're going to do that. So let's say it's like, look, we have to remove your uterus um, before it spreads or you're going to die. If the baby is, let's say, 23, 24 weeks along, I'm going to say, OK, do a C-section. Um, at this point, it's got about a 50 percent chance of survival. Um, based on kind of where our um, our medical technology is right now, um, let's do our best for the baby. Uh, but unfortunately, there are cases, uh, most commonly ectopic pregnancies, where the child does not implant in the uterus, but implants in usually the fallopian tubes instead, or rarely other places in her body, um, where there's just no way right now to save the baby. It'd be great if there was, but there's but there's not. Um, there's a couple of doctors who've claimed that they that they did it and and they didn't document what they did well and I, I don't I just I, I just frankly don't buy it um, and so this is a case where I think it's a it's, it's a self defense situation um, you know it, you know some people like when pro life people read um, a pro life philosophy book by someone like Francis Beckwith or or Christopher Kayser. They'll wonder, like, why in these syllogisms do they say things like it is prima facie wrong to kill innocent human beings? Well, there's a reason for that. Like, the, the prima facie is is doing a, a, some work there. 
Um, it's saying in general, uh, most of the time, um, it is wrong to kill innocent human beings. But there might be weird, rare exceptions. I just think self-defense is, is maybe the most obvious. Yeah, one, ex- one case I can think of that's been used before, mm-hmm. uh, this was used in Matt Flanagan and Paul Copan's book on the God Recommend Genocide. It said, picture 9-11, and we have knowledge about a plane heading towards the Pentagon. And, yep. of course, we know that the pilot said, hey, let's just go ahead and go down on our own. But they were going to shoot the plane down rather than have it be an attack. Because, you know, people were going to die anyway. So, in that case, even if you disagreed, you could probably look and say, yeah, I disagree with action, but I understand why they were doing it. Yeah, yeah. And and, and that's the case. Like that, that, That's, like, closer to, like, just war mm-hmm. theory, probably. Uh, but um, it was a lot of people agree with. Uh, like, like, basic self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, defending yourself from a lethal threat. Like, there's this... I know that there are some people who, who like are f- like full on pacifists and are just like, mm-hmm. nope, I would let him kill me. Um, but I think that's the bullet you have to bite here. If you're going to be mm-hmm. the very, very rare pro-life person who says that we we should not allow a woman to intervene in this situation, that's like it's almost unheard of. But if you you're going to have to bite the bullet on that. Mm-hmm. Like to, to take the recent, um, there's a recent situation of um, like two burglars. Um, break into the home and they are pistol whipping the husband mm-hmm. um, and the wife and mother grabs their AR-15 and that is the reason she was able to defend her family um, yeah. and, she shot, and she shot and killed the, the two I don't think burglars even the right word here the, the, the assaulting you know the, 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 the violent the assailants the, the mm-hmm. violent threats um, and I, I, I didn't like not that many people are upset by the, I like think that she was in the wrong, and if they mm-hmm. do, they're mad because it was an AR-15. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the bullet you have to bite. You have to say nope. She should have not gotten the AR-15. She mm-hmm. should have like gone down with her hands up and sit and surrendered basically. Um, and so this is self. It's very very tragic. Um, and if we can save both, obviously we should save both. But that's not the, the situation with ectopic pregnancies. And so um, it's just one of these um, you know tragic situations. So yeah. there's uh, a kind I- of the yeah, I, I've told my wife before several times, I said, I want you to be very clear. This is my stance. If someone ever seriously wants to try and hurt you in any way, the only way they are going to get to hurt you is literally over my dead body. That's yeah. it. That is the right thing to say. That, 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 that is a good husband position mm-hmm. to have. I do, I do believe that is our, our moral responsibility. So uh, You know, mm-hmm. of course, naturally, I also really liked what you said about the disabled, because you yeah. know very well that I'm technically considered disabled. Yeah. And I personally take offense at it when people talk about the disabled and kind of imply our lives aren't worth living. I mean, yeah. I, I enjoy the Unbelievable po- podcast. I was on there mm-hmm. once before. Justin Browdy called me on shortly after the Haiti earthquake to talk about the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, Nick, what's it like for you, you know, being someone who uh, suffers with Asperger's? And mm-hmm. I said, you know, I, I want to be very clear on my position. I have Asperger's. I do not suffer with it. Mm. Suffering yeah. is a choice. I enjoy my life very much and I'm yeah. I'm actually happy with my condition. But yeah. I, I, it, it it's a huge slap in the face and 
I, I meet so many parents who have kids with Down syndrome and other children, not condition, mm-hmm. like I can say, these children are the most precious gift to me. They have taught me yeah. so much. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. And um, and as I told you before we started, my, my, my wife and, and my my two oldest uh, sons are, are all diagnosed with with Asperger's, and um, and you're right. I, I think I think that is the right way to think of it. Is it's not a, it's not this huge disability. It's just it's just uh, you, your brain is wired differently, and it's great to know that. My it's been really great. Like we didn't know this about my wife when we got married. We found this, you know, I don't know. I guess it would have been something like six or seven or eight years into the marriage, and it explains so much, you know. And it was a mm-hmm. wonderful thing. It was a freeing thing for my wife. Um, she used to be so frustrated, feeling like, like, wh- why is it so hard for me to get to know people? And she just thought that she was really awkward. It was like, oh no, my brain just works differently. God wired me differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's obviously pros and cons, and you know that better than 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 I do. Um, but there isn't there. So there's this interesting thing that happened. I was, um, I was either last year or two years ago. Sometimes these stories, you know, they all kind of run together, but I spoke at a Miami university in Ohio and, um, and the last question, um, at the event that I did, um, someone asked about, it was basically the question that you asked, what, 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 what should we do about babies who are super disabled? And I gave, I talked about the choosing Thomas video and, and I, 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 I kind of gave the answer that I gave you. And um, and afterwards, I hung out. They had like a kind of a, uh, it was really cool. I, this has never happened in one of my other talks, but uh, they, like the next room, they'd set up like hot chocolate and cookies, <laughs> stuff like that, tea. And um, and people could kind of hang out and have refreshments um, and and chat. And, and I spent most of my time, not with the pro-lifers, but hanging out with two pro-choice people who came. Um, one of them was a pro-choice philosophy professor, and he and I got along really well. And and but then the other one was a a young woman who was a pro-choice atheist disability rights activist. Mm. And she came up and she said, "I wanted to tell you that I loved your answer at the end of the talk um, because I I had added one other thing there, given that it was a mixed audience. When uh, when someone you know I, I said you know when people think that um, we should be able to abort disabled be, uh, babies. I, I actually just think that's ableist. That's an ableist position. That is able-bodied people thinking that they should choose whether disabled people should be able to live. And obviously, we shouldn't be able to do that. It's just like I love that answer. You know, it really connected with her. So I'm I'm com- completely with you. And I don't. I, I I know a lot of other pro-life speakers who have uh, various. Uh, disabilities and they all take offense at this idea that you know only you know able-bodied babies should have a right to live like of course not of course not so yeah i i i just don't understand these kinds of people who take this approach and it is this kind of it's this horrible way of saying i'm the one who gets to decide whose life is worth living and whose isn't and I'm super thankful with Nav. I mean, I'm married. I love my wife very much. I get to do the work that I love very much. Could things be better? Yeah. Or some things I want to change? Yeah. Everyone says that. But I'm doing what I can. Yeah. And so you said something about uh, just now about not understanding 
uh, why people would say this. So, so there's something that we do a lot here at ERI is we try to help pro-life people to better understand pro-choice people. So let me throw out just kind of a quick explanation of why some people would think this. Um, because on his face, it sounds awful, right? It sounds mm-hmm. um, like borderline, like a, like a eugenic way of thinking, right? Um, and But remember, most pro-choice people do not believe what you and I do, which is that you are a living human person from fertilization on. They think that happens later. And so they think there's like this period of time in the beginning of your biological life where you're biologically alive, maybe you're human, but you're not valuable yet. Your right to life has not begun yet. You maybe are like a, like I like something that Trent Horn says, and I saw he's on your schedule too. He's a good friend of mine. So uh, Trent Trent Horn said this thing uh, one time where he's like, it's kind of like, they might think that it's got some value, like like a golden retriever has some value, but it's not equal with you and I. Um, but they don't think it's really valuable yet. And so they don't think that they're doing anything wrong mm-hmm. when they're having an abortion, just like they wouldn't think they're doing anything wrong if they have a tooth pulled. Um, because that's actually like a part of your body. Um, it's not this like other organism. And so I think a lot of times that's what's going on for them is, is they actually believe that they are preventing suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're making the mistake, and I think this is a huge mistake, of believing that, like, all disabled people, like, like it's better for them never to have lived at all. And that mm-hmm. you should take great offense. To. I do. Um, and it's like, you know, like, look, like, for their own sake, we're just going to get rid of them in the beginning mm-hmm. um, it, before they begin to live. Um, but, but most Richard of them, Dawkins said it where, for instance, when someone yeah. told me how the cave of born down syndrome what we do and he was still in the womb and said abort and try again yeah but again so here's what's really interesting so i wrote an article about that thing about, about dawkins gate uh when he said that and and mine was the only pro-life article that richard dawkins actually tweeted um or or retweeted because what i was trying to do in that piece is, is the exact same thing i'm doing now is understand look if you have these two beliefs that dawkins has one that it's not a person in the beginning and that too, as a utilitarian, he wants to reduce suffering as much as possible. It makes sense mm-hmm. that he would say, look, before you have a person that has a right to life, that has some kind of serious moral status, um, and presumably that would suffer later, and, and like there would be more suffering and, and not less, then of course you should have an abortion. And we would just disagree with both of those things that he believes. Mm-hmm. One, um, it is a person in the very beginning, and I can make good philosophical arguments to defend that. But also, too, I think he's wrong that disabled people are having more um, suffering uh, than less. You know, mm-hmm. like that, that the, in all their experiences are basically mostly terrible and maybe fleeting, happy mm-hmm. experience. Like, I just like, have you ever hung out with a Down syndrome person? Like people with Down syndrome are the happiest people I know. Uh, it's, it's able-bodied people that are like the most depressed, I think. Um, and so he's just wrong on both counts. But if you have those two beliefs in your worldview, I think what he says makes sense. It's, he's just wrong. Yeah. I, I, I really never understood it. I mean, to me, disability for me is really a gift. I, I had a friend who... Uh, I went to seminary with, and he knew about my condition, and then, lo and behold, he has a son who has Asperger's, and he contacts a bunch of people, including me, 
and says, what do I do? What do I do? How, how should I handle this? And I'm not saying it's a fact about me, but it's just saying facts. He said, you gave me the best response that there was to mm. this. Because when peop- I told other people about this, they treat it like my son had been diagnosed with cancer or something like that. And when I talked to him, I said, first thing I do, I get on my knees and thank God because you are going to get to see the world through a whole new set of eyes that you had never seen before. It is going to be a new experience for you. It's going to be an exciting experience. It will be hard, right. but you will become a better person for this. And my wife has her own set of disabilities. She's got um, borderline personality disorder, for instance. And she, she, I often ask, she's like, how can you love someone who's like me? Like that? I say, honey. It's because I love you that I'm a better person mm-hmm. now because I've learned what it means to love someone so differently from me yeah. and see the world of holding yourself Because, I mean, I'm largely Mr. Logic in so many ways, and she's extremely emotional. And I have to see the world through that set of eyes. It is a very enriching experience yeah. to me. I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, let's keep going on here with this kind of, with this topic here. Okay, so we've got someone who's a, a human being, and, but now we've reached an age where, you know, it was bad enough when we started talking about abortion before the fact, but now, I mean, even now, now there's talk about post-birth abortion yeah. going on, and you you can't ever say that's done for. The mother's health, unless you really, really redefine what health yeah. is. It just seems like with abortion, that side is getting more and more dangerous. Yeah, I think there's a few things going on there. So uh, pretty much every time we do an outreach on a college campus, at least once that day, some student is going to defend infanticide. Yeah. It's like not just abortion. Um, but infanticide. And use, most of the time, I think that they do that. I don't really think they mean it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what they're doing is they're in fight mode. Like they're treating this like a, like, a, like, a, like a debate or a game or something like that where there's winners and losers. And I've kind of backed them into a corner where they, if, you know, I've kind of shown there's not really a moral difference, morally relevant difference between newborns and third trimester fetuses. And so if they kind of can see that, then their view starts collapsing. And so sometimes people just like, they, they're so in this debate mode thing, they don't want to lose. And so they'll start saying whatever they have to say so that they don't feel like they lost at the end. Um, and so sometimes what I'm doing now is I'm just kind of like pausing and just saying like, I'll just kind of tell them, like, look, here's the thing that happens to me sometimes. Sometimes I'm talking to someone and they and they feel like this is a debate and that there's winners and losers. And then they'll just start saying whatever they have to say. Um, and at that point, it's not really a real conversation anymore. It's like this different thing. And I, I don't think of this as a, as a debate. My my view on this is, is very different. I think what I want to do is um, go on a journey with you where we're both being open minded and trying to discover truth together. Um, and both of us are willing to abandon faulty 
views. Like we all have wrong views. We just don't know what they all are, right? And so, um, I, I so like let's, better. let's go Coco. on that journey. Greg, yeah, that, that, that's, like so, like, that's says, the Greg Coco line. He says, I know, I've te- I know I teach some things that are wrong. He says, Great, well, why do you keep teaching them? Because I don't know what they are, but I'm pretty sure I'm not exactly. the only person who's got them all right. <laughs> I grew up on Greg Kokel, so I, I think sometimes I'm just like saying Kokelisms without even realizing it sometimes. So yeah, like that, that's something I say to students all the time. Yeah. Um, and so like, look, if you just said that maybe killing newborns is okay because you're just trying not to lose the debate, I'm just going to give you like a gimme, you know, like, like, like in Gulf, they call it a mulligan. Like it's like, like you get a do-over now and we're not, I'm not going to count it against you. Mm-hmm. Um Let's just like move forward and let's just have a real conversation because that's what I'm interested in having. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've got better things to do with my time than just do a game with people where it's like this intellectual exercise. I want to actually like try to figure out like what what is true here. And that only works if we're having an authentic conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I'm able if they are if they're, if they're really stick to their guns like, no, I really think we can kill newborns. I don't think they're that valuable. I can have that conversation. But I think most people don't think that. I think like it's like it's, it's Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, and then mm-hmm. uh, Jubilini and Minerva, those two philosophers from Australia that wrote that afterbirth abortion paper. Like these are the only four philosophers I know mm-hmm. who really believe that newborns aren't persons. And I think almost everyone else doesn't buy it. Although um, it, there is this interesting thing where uh, sometimes precious people are becoming more extreme. Um, and I think when they are, there's a few things going on. Is there, I think sometimes it's kind of a reaction to Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it's like, look, if they feel like, it's like, like think of like Antifa. Like Antifa, it doesn't mean they're right, but it's like they're reacting to something. And like, they're feeling like this extremism is called for because we're in this, this situation. I was just watching a video like last night. Um, of someone, they, they were kind of defending Antifa, just kind of saying, like, look, you know, it's only it's only now, the situation we're in now, like climate change is, is such a big problem, the human race is going to die out unless we do something big. So free speech doesn't matter as much now. Um, we need to punch the Nazis and like all this stuff. Like, like this is the basic Antifa view. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're defending that. And so that, that's, that's an extremist view. The good news is um, uh, young people don't want to be thought of as extremists, mm-hmm. generally speaking, um, especially if they kind of consider themselves in the middle. They want to not be thought of as extremists. They want to be totally thought of as open-minded. Yes. Well, also, like, yes, open-minded, which everyone calls themselves open-minded, and I don't think that many people really are. But, uh, yes, they want to be thought of as open-minded, but they also want to be thought of as sort of like above the fray, like they can see strong arguments on both sides um, and and they never end up like picking a, a camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will use that to my uh, my, you know, advantage um, sometimes. For example, when a process person says, well, she should be able to do whatever she wants with anything inside of her body. Um, so now we're in like bodily autonomy land like this is like the way this argument functions is they're just like assuming for sake of argument it is a person Mm -hmm. but even if it is she should have the right to kill it because of bodily autonomy i'm going to say like real quick there's a couple quick attempts at common ground like do we agree that late-term abortions are wrong and should be against the law and they'll usually say yeah of course we shouldn't have late-term abortions that's terrible okay are there any 
like reasons women shouldn't be able to have abortions. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I they shouldn't be able to have birth control abortions or sex selection abortions or something like that. Um, it's like, OK, um, well, that doesn't work if your view, if the way you ground the right to abortion is by saying she can do whatever she wants with anything inside of her body. Because where's the baby in the third trimester? It's still in her body, which means if that's the way you ground your your view, then all abortions should be legal. And that's an extremist position to say that we should like it's, it's the New York abortion law position. All abortions are OK. You can have an abortion at nine months into pregnancy if you choose, because we're not going to limit or restrict abortion in any way. And most pro-choice people don't believe with that. Like they, they, they are uh, opposed to late term abortion, most of them. And so now I'm forcing them to choose, just like with the equal rights argument, I'm forcing them to choose to either be pro-equality or pro-choice. Uh, Here mm -hmm. I'm going to force them to choose between having an extremist view that all abortions are okay, or I think the reasonable position that is wrong to kill babies. And I'm hoping they choose that. But even if they choose, if even if they bite the bullet, um, like some do, and just say, well, fine, maybe maybe we can kill newborns too or whatever, um, then it's, I think they're still better off because they're walking away from our conversation with a uh, uncomfortable but consistent pro-choice position, whereas they walked up with a comfortable but inconsistent pro-choice position. And I want to drive the comfortable pro-choice position extinct. Mind one, uh, we're around the halfway point, but you're listening to the Equal Wars podcast. We've got Josh Bram on here talking about his work at the Equal Rights Institute. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Michael Jones from Culture Wars on talk about his positions on abortion and his arguments against them. So if you're interested in that, come on back next week and we'll talk about that. Yeah, I, I remember now, I just want to say that about Twin Horn, yes, he was on. Last week, in fact, and we had a good discussion. He is actually very helpful to me when I was preparing for my debate against Dan Barker. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, I think Trent Horn is the pro life movement's best public debater right mm -hmm. now. Like, mm -hmm. he's so quick uh, on his feet. Um, he's funny, which not very many pro life speakers are. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, he's just very well seasoned. Obviously, he's worked on Catholic Answers, and before that, it's just for all. Um, he's just very well seasoned in that, and um, but, you know, we're, I'm always, you know, grateful to, you know, that we'll sometimes kind of pick each other's brains, and yeah, he's great. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's talk more. Getting back to the whole topic of abortion, mm -hmm. some of that's usually brought up, and it's nonsense when it is, because so many times pro-life bring up, say, you know, this is the one objection that pro-life 
So for choice crowd would say, this is a win objection. Pro-lifers are never arguing. That's that you've got a fire going on in a clinic that right. does the in vitro fertilization, and you've got 100 embryos versus, say, 10 employees that you can get out. And how many of them are going to go over those embryos? None. They're going to go over those employees, which proves they don't think those embryos are persons. Well, Josh, Josh, I'm I'm afraid that your position's defeat entirely, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you got me. It was that simple. You know what's funny? So, so this argument uh, became popular again uh, a couple of years ago. There was a viral tweet that went out, uh, like a, or a, a Twitter thread, um, rather, that had this argument, and everyone was treating it like it was this brand new argument. It's like this is like a ten year old argument, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but suddenly, like, you know, I when you do full-time pro-life work, like we'll have, you know, pro-life friends or family members. And a lot of times they're not, you know, necessarily asking all the time uh, what we're doing, but man, our friends came out of the woodwork when this tweet came out. Like, what do we do about this one? Like, what should we say? Uh, I was like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Um, so there's a couple things that we're doing here um, is um, I, What's, there's this tricky thing you've got to do in the actual dialogue. If someone in front of you is actually saying this, there's a hurdle here where to answer the question that the purchase person is trying to ask you, you actually have to help them fix the thought experiment because this is a very flawed analogy and they don't know that. So you've got to like get permission to help them fix it, which is tricky. So you've got to kind of say something, and we've got an article on this. If you go to the Equal Rights Institute blog, we have an article that's like something like four tips when talking about the burning in vitro lab or something like that, um, IVF clinic. Um, and so we explain it there. But you basically got to like say like, okay, I am not going to dodge this question because I know you're expecting me to want to dodge the question. I'm not going to dodge the question. Um, but I think you're trying to ask me something specific um, and if I answer the thought experiment the way you're asking it right now, um, you're not going to get the result you're looking for because there's problems with the analogy. There are things, um, as Greg Kokel says, there's parallels here that are not parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like affecting my intuitions. Um, and so, like, for example, um, like usually the way this thought experiment happens is you've got, you know, you've got basically like you've got a baby and then 100 embryos, like frozen embryos. And it's like, well, one, the baby feels pain and the embryos don't, and that definitely influences me. Um, uh, The thought of a baby, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, it's kind of graphic, but like, you know, burning alive, you know, melting and screaming and pain and and terror, that's horrible. Um, That's influencing my intuitions. Um, and, And also the fact that, um, generally speaking, frozen embryos do not have a guarantee that they're going to live anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it used to be half of them died in the thawing process when we were trying to um, get ready to implant them into their mother. Um, now, there are some IVF clinics, um, or at least one IVF clinic recently that has developed a newer, a better thawing process that has, according to them, more like a 90 to 95% um, survival rate. I don't think everyone's using it, um, though. So let, even if it's ninety nine ninety five, like who's to know that 
it's going to get implanted as opposed to killed for stem cell research or thrown away. That's what happens a lot of times. So there's all these different problems here. So it's like, I would like to help you tweak the analogy so that I can answer the question I think you're trying to ask me, which is basically you want to really find out, do I really think that embryos are persons or do I just say that because I want to control women's bodies or I'm wanting to you know, punish women for having premarital sex or something like that? I think that's what you're trying to ask me, but the problem is these, these uh, unanalogous things are getting in the way. Um, so, I mean, in the end, my answer to the question we're trying to ask is, generally speaking, I think I should save the most lives I can. So there's an answer here that I don't like, that I heard a pro-life speaker give, um, and I won't, I won't name, I, I, I won't name them, but um, it's, it was funny. Um, but he kind of, he kind of made this joke about how he's, he's, he's kind of biting the bullet on, um, you know, maybe he can be inconsistent, but that doesn't prove that his position is wrong. And so his joke that he made uh, at a thing that I was at was, you know, there's a hundred people in this room. If my wife were in here and the place was on fire and I could either save my wife or I could save all of you, mm-hmm. you're toast. And yeah. it was funny, you know, like, right. That's like, it's a funny way to say that. Um, but I don't actually think that's the right position. I think like, I'm like, really? Like, what if there's a thousand? What if there's 10,000? Like at some point, shouldn't you save those people and not your wife? Um, like if it's one to one, sure. You've got a yeah, greater obligation If it to was say my, me and my wife and my best friend and my guys are in a room. Yeah. You've been a good friend, but I'm taking her. Right. But like, what? Like, I think even by the time you get to a hundred, I'm like, I kind of think the right thing here is to save those people. And I don't think I'm a utilitarian. I just think, like, I legitimately, I think my obligations change at that point. Um, and so I, I, I don't think we should um, just kind of say, like, throw up our hands and just say, hey, maybe I'm consistent, and maybe that doesn't matter. Like, I mean, obviously that's true. We could be inconsistent, and that that would improve anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd rather say, like, I think um, my obligations, if there's, let's say there's, you know, there's 100 embryos and one embryo, clearly the 100 embryos is the obligation. If it's 100 embryos and 100 babies, I'm going to save 100 babies because they feel pain, and that tips the scales for me. Like, like, it depends on what we're comparing here. But generally speaking, I think I should save as many people as I can. Um, if there's a hundred, if the, if the building's on fire and I can save a hundred people, I'm going to save a hundred people and not my wife, mm-hmm. um, or, or not an embryo or whatever. I mean, it's, it's like, it depends on, but like, I'm going to want to help them kind of fix the, the analogy because the, the thought experiment is making my intuitions go a little bit. My, the, my intuition pumps are not functioning the way they're wanting them to function. So I want to answer the question directly. Okay. And I want them to know right away, I'm going to answer your question because they're expecting me to dodge it. And I want them to know, like, I, I think it's an interesting question. I just think it's, I think there's a smarter way to ask it. I think, I think there's a way to ask it that makes, makes it harder for me. Like, it make, like you're trying to put me in the hot seat and it's not hot enough. If you really want to put me in the hot seat, make this thing hotter. Um, let's fix it. Let me help you fix it. And then I will answer their question and, yep. and go from there. Something I've been meaning to ask for quite some time and just popped into my mind again. You talked about the very beginning of the interview about, how, you know, you read Francis Beckford's material when you were starting, and you, but some things have changed, some things haven't changed. What were some things that, you know, that were good arguments and 
such to use back then and were persuasive then, but today you think, no, this really, this really needs to be replaced by something else. Not just scientific advancements, I'm sure there are some, but what are some other things as well? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's a, that's a very valid question. Um, but it's awkward for me because uh, these are people I all really yeah. respect. Like, we mm-hmm. really believe we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And yeah. you know, people like, like Scott is still a mentor of mm-hmm. mine. He's still on our advisory board, and I love that man to death. And, um, um, and, um, and we just sometimes disagree on what is most persuasive, I think. Um, and so it's all area of respectful disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have found, um, and we don't talk about this very much in public because we're not trying to start fights in the movement. Um, we just kind of like, let's just teach what we seem are finding to work best. But um, the equal rights argument that I described earlier, um, we have never found an argument changed more minds about abortion on the spot. Um, mm-hmm. is, yeah, I've called it the most undervalued argument in the pro-life movement because not enough people are using it. I'm not saying like we mm-hmm. didn't create it. It was really a J.P. Moreland thing that we just started. We tweaked it, but we started using it on campus. Um, we created a good thought experiment that goes further when people say, well, I don't think that they're, that is humanist. I think it's self-awareness or sentience or whatever. Like we've got mm-hmm. a cool thought experiment that I think works really well there. But um, we found that to work a lot better than the ways that the pro-life movement has defended fetal personhood in the in the past. Um, things like the sled test is kind of a famous example. We've we just found this thing to work better. Um, um, there's uh, like a common pro-life argument when we're responding to bodily autonomy arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like the violinist argument, you know, you've been, you wake up and you're in this hospital bed and you're, you know, you've been kidnapped and your kidneys have been connected to this violinist with a kidney problem and you you're forced to remain hooked up. Um, there's there's good responses to that argument, but there's also, I think, not very persuasive responses. For example, um, I've got a, a friend and colleague who teaches that we should kind of respond by saying, um, yeah, but your kidneys were not designed to help people, but, but the womb was, the uterus was designed to help people. And so, like, um, unborn children have a right to women's bodies. Um, and one, I think that's terribly unpersuasive when you teach pro-life men to make that argument. You don't want to be a man making that argument to a pro-choice feminist on a campus. You know, these these babies have the right to use women's bodies against their will. Like, that's just not a very persuasive no. way to, to couch this. Um, but also, I think ultimately it's a religious argument. Um, it's a teleological argument. It's an argument based on intelligent design. Um, and most pro-choice atheists I know don't believe that your body parts were designed to do anything. They would say, like, your eyes see. It's really helpful. <laughs> but um, they weren't designed that way. We can't draw moral, certainly not legal, obligations from that. It's just like this is just a thing that, you know, we uh, evolved. Um, it's the same, like your womb, you know, was designed to help children. That does not persuade. It would be very persuasive maybe to a person Christian, um, mm-hmm. but not atheist. Um, and so it's like, but we're always just trying to figure out what is working. But we're actually always trying to beat even our own material. So mm-hmm. um, there's a response to bodily rights arguments that we used to teach that uh, we are very much deprioritizing just in the last year. Um, something that we worked on a lot with Justice for All called the de facto guardian argument. Um, and I won't go into all the details because it would take a while. But um, we have found 
something that works better. Frankly, it's it's more similar to the way Beckwith um, responds. Uh, and, and we need to make a new video on it and um, and and show more kind of the parallels to the way that Beckwith talked about it. Um, but I, I just we we had we've got this amazing students for life uh, group at St. Olaf University that those students are so good at dialogue, I can take their tests really seriously too. When they say this one thing's working and this other thing's not working, I can take it about as seriously as my own staff because they're so skilled at dialogue and so friendly and careful about the way they talk. Um, and they they do outreaches almost every week. And they and they said, yeah, the fact of gardening doesn't work as well as this new approach of, of kind of talking about how um, you have an obligation to not directly kill people. Um, uh, uh, so like, for example, if you're, you know, on a boat and you're out to sea, you realize that, uh, uh, you know, let's say a, a young boy snuck onto your boat. Um, he was naughty, you know, he, was, he snuck away from his parents. They didn't realize it. He snuck onto your boat and you shouldn't have done that. And then you discover, and you're two miles out to sea and you're like, well, there's this kid, he's like seven. Um, well, here's a case where you only have two options. You can either help him by driving back to shore and, and helping him find his parents, or you can kill him by throwing him out to sea. Um, and this is an important, I think, analogy because a lot of persuasive people get confused. They think that there's three options in pregnancy. There's a help option, but there's also a kill option and a don't help option. Um, and they think of abortion is not helping. Kind of like um, if Nick, if you asked me to donate my kidney to you because mm -hmm. you had some kidney problem, um, I have three options there in that case. I have a help option. I can give you my kidney. I have a don't help option, which is saying thanks, but no thanks. Or I can like directly kill you. I can be like, I, I don't I, I, I don't want you to be offended by me uh, refusing your offer. And so I'm going to shoot you dead. Um, there's three options there. Um, but pregnancy is a weird case, kind of like the being on a boat with a with a stranger child, where there's really only two options. You can't just like I had approach this person try to respond. Well, maybe the child can swim to shore. I'm like, no, he can't. That's not the situation I'm explaining. You know, just like the unborn children aren't going to survive, especially in the obviously in the first trimester, if you just like take them out of the mother's body, like because they're just they're not going to live. They can't. Um, just like a baby is not going to swim to shore, you know, um, there's only two options here. And in that case, when there's only those those two options, I think we have an obligation to help and to not directly kill. You sometimes have an obligation to not help, but you can't kill people. Can, can't not kill people. I like to mind when at this point that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do here is supported by listeners like you. And I'd really like to encourage you to donate to our podcast, you can go to our website, deeperwatersofprojects.com and make your donations there. You see, there's a link on the site that says, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. If you click there, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. <laughs> you, you make a donation, and then when you... Uh, do that, you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Michael, Debbie, and you let us know, and, and that donation is tax deductible. 
You can also buy some ebooks. One that I've written, a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles Creed of the Days Christian. And as of this recording, I've just sent off to my ministry partner the latest one I've done, a response to Richard Dawkins' book, Outgrowing God. That should be available soon. You can also buy ones I've co-written, Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, The Mentionables Project, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, Christian Answers for This Generation's Questions, and a few, there might be one or two others, I can't remember, there's been quite a few of them. And if you can't do any of those, please just go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. And guys, I love to see them, it's <laughs> it, it, it it's you, you know this very well, Josh. Right? They're, they're encouraging to see it when is. you get them. It's it's nice and, because like I mean I'm in one of those weird cases where I get a lot of hate mail from pro-lifers too who mm-hmm. are offended by something I said or another. Yeah. So it's always nice to get the positive, encouraging bits too. Yeah, and guys, please just go leave those pause reviews. It means so much. But everything you can do to help us here. You have no idea what a difference it makes. It really does. Now, um, Josh, do you have an organization or a charity that you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah. So uh, Equal Rights Institute is the is the nonprofit that I co-founded and, and the president of that's trying to help pro-life people to be less weird and more like Jesus. And so if people want to support that work also, then they can go to equalrightsinstitute.com and all the all the links are there. Wait, wait, we're supposed to be less weird. I, I never got that memo. <laughs> yeah, uh, most of the pro life movement has not gotten that memo, Nick. Um, and, and and what I mean by weird, and I always say this in jest, but like what, what I, when I say weird, I, there's a good kind of weird. It's mm-hmm. like like I'm about to go to the march for life, right? And there's going to be like a mm-hmm. half a million pro lifers, probably out in the cold, maybe the rain or the snow, um, marching for the unborn in D.C. Like there's something kind of weird about all these people traveling to D.C. to do that. But that's a good kind of weird. That's just like standing mm-hmm. up for our beliefs. The, what, what, what I want us to not do, the bad kind of weird is, I don't know if you've ever seen people be like this, Nick, but um, people that I call um, well-meaning but off-putting, mm-hmm. um, we don't want to do that. This is another cocalism. Um, just like Rick Cocal says, the gospel message is offensive enough. Let's not add more offense to it. Um, I think we should say that about the pro-life message. The pro-life message is offensive enough. Let's not add more offense to it. Let's not get in our own way. Let's not shoot ourselves in the foot while we're going. And sometimes pro-life people can be really off-putting in the way that they talk mm-hmm. with pro-choice people. And so I want to see us um, not be like that. And so like we're uh, this, there's the dialogue style that we're teaching is just it's a gentler more friendly, it's more relational approach. I'm encouraging pro-life people to have a pro-choice friend and go and get coffee with them once or twice a month and mm-hmm. have these conversations in that context of friendship where there's trust there and you're building rapport and showing them that you're smart too and um, that even if you might not know all the answers right now, it's okay because you can go and research them or ask us at Equal Rights Institute, we'll help you out and um, you can have this ongoing conversations. And for a lot of people, that's what they need to change their mind. Some people mm-hmm. can't change their mind in one day. It happens. We mm-hmm. see it about every outreach that we do. But like the mm-hmm. stars have to align for, <laughs> for that to happen. And they have to be like open-minded. And again, not that many people are. And probably not have a personal abortion experience in their in their past. And like all these different things have to happen. 
And uh, and most people, they need more time. Just like if I sat down with Sam Harris and he beat me in a debate on Christianity, like I probably wouldn't become an atheist that day. I might become an atheist down the road if, if I came to believe that his his uh, argument stronger than um, the best Christian responses, you know, like William Lane Craig's responses or whatever. Um, but I'm not going to just become an atheist that day. And most pro-choice people are the same. Um, and so, yeah, I want to help pro-life people become um, uh, less off, off-putting so we can change more minds and frankly become more loving like Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Mr. Wait. See, uh, Gary Habermas is a friend of mine, yeah. as I'm sure you know, and he said before, and I agree with this definitely, that historical Jesus research has changed in that now even liberals will agree with things that weren't agreed with yes. so long ago because of data. And uh, someone like Hugh Ross, who's been on the show a number of times, fellow Aspie, We'll say that arguments for general relativity are getting better and better over time. So let's apply that to the science of abortion. As we are doing more and more research in this area, is the case, is your, how do you think things are looking for your case? I mean, are you honestly concerned about things coming down the pipe? Or do you look and say, I think the case is getting better and better for us? So that is such a good question. Um, you took you took that from a pretty good question to a really good question. Um, so, man, yeah, several thoughts that I have about that. Um, one, I think generally, um, just like what what what, what Gary Habermas is, is finding, um, I think we're seeing that on both sides of the abortion debate. I think everyone is getting better at arguing mm-hmm. about these issues whether it's about the science or the philosophy side. So pro-life people are necessarily um, needing to get better um, uh, in the way that they argue, and that's what we're trying to do in the move. And it's kind of our role in the movement, or part of our role, is to help give them, um, help them go from good arguments to great arguments. And pro-choice people are getting a lot better, too. Um, And so... Well, I'll come back to that in a second. Like on the pro-life side, so you mentioned the biological side. I think the biological side is only getting stronger and stronger. Um, like uh, it used to be a big part of the abortion debate of, you know, is this entity that is being aborted even a living thing? Is it even a member of our species? And then mm-hmm. ultrasound technology happened. And it's just like you're seeing the heartbeat and you're seeing it move around and, and react to, to, to stimulus. And like it's just, it's not really a debate. We can observe an embryo through an electron microscope and watch it do the kinds of things that living organisms do, uh, you know, growing through cellular reproduction, of reacting to stimuli, to metabolizing food and energy. Like when things can do that, biologists don't debate whether it's alive anymore. 
So the pro-choice movement had to evolve, and they did. And now they are arguing more about personhood, more about bodily autonomy, um, and more about the potential negative effects of making abortion illegal, like, you know, theoretical back-alley abortions or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. that's the majority of the debate now. Not Almost no pro-choice people on college campuses are arguing that the unborn is a, not alive or not a human. I, I definitely hear that online. Like, people on, like, YouTube comments will say that, but that's, like, a whole different thing. <laughs> it's like uh, I suspect it's like... In my fear, but if you go to a scholar, it's no one's really debating, did Jesus exist? But if you go online, oh, that's yeah. a big debate going on. Exactly. It's a great, it's a great analogy. So, <laughs> yeah, so there is, um, there is a pro-choice argument um, that is coming down the pipeline that we have been wanting to not come down the pipeline because I think it's very strong. And, I, and I'm tempted not to get into it because, frankly, this is something our philosophy team is still working on. Um, publishing uh, a response to like we we know part of where we're going, but we're not done. Like I love we have a philosophy team. Like we got a team of people who are just working on this kind of thing. Um, but uh, and so we were aware of it years ago, and not talking about it before we had published work on it because we didn't want to really accidentally give pro-choice people the nuclear launch codes without helping pro-life people with the response. Um, and then, frankly, unfortunately, in the last year, the argument has become a lot more popular. Um, there's a couple of abortion practitioners that have been focusing on this argument. Like one of them wrote about it, like the New York Times. So it's kind of out now. And that's a bummer. You know, I, I think at this point we have to mention what the argument is. And who knows? Maybe one of our listeners out there is the person who's got the answer to it. Yeah. And, and so I'll get to that. And I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about part of our, our, our response. Or like I'll, I'll give a okay. partial response. But just know it's not um, it's not our full response. We're still finalizing. We're going we're gonna to put out a video in the next month or two on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. That'll give the fuller response. But the pro-choice argument goes like this. It's, it's sort of a self-defense-like argument. Um, which says that every pregnancy is um, a physical threat to the mother. Because obviously, while life-threatening situations are rare, you never know if you're going to be one of those rare cases. Mm -hmm. And um, and so uh, since abortion um, is safer than childbirth, at least supposedly, um, then um, like abortion should be legal because women should not be forced to be in a potentially dangerous situation um, of, of having to go through childbirth or something which can have some inherent risks. Um, so it's kind of like a, like a pre-self-defense kind of an argument, um, which is very interesting. Um, there are certain things that we would not force people to do, e even if it's a lesser threat than their life is literally like they're about to die if an intervention doesn't happen. Um, and so here's here's our partial response. Um, childbirth, um, the the the, uh, the best maternal mortality stat that we have found um, in America, um, uh, the maternal mortality rate is zero point zero zero four percent. I think it is. It might be zero point zero four percent. It's one of the two, which is far safer than other medical procedures that are considered very, very safe. 0.04 um, or 0.004% 0 
is is just not considered a dangerous medical situation. If it was 0.4%, yeah, that's that's kind of dangerous. Or obviously 4%, that's very dangerous. But 0.004% is is not a very dangerous. So it doesn't like it, when we think about um, when people debate about self defense, like mm-hmm. like when you think about like defending your home, like the like the AR-15 story I told earlier, like the right way to think about about it, you're thinking about things like is the, how much of a lethal threat is or an imminent threat is this person to my life. So, you know, if a burglar is on his way out of your house and is like getting in his car to drive away, I don't think you should like point your gun out the window and start firing, right? That's like a different situation than the wife who found uh, her husband being pistol whipped by these two guys. And like, who knows? Like, they might be about to shoot him. Um, but, so like the, we, we, the, the calculus is different there. Um, and I think something like that is going on here is, um, uh, yes, um, you, uh, pregnancy, if it was a certain level of danger, maybe this would be a different situation, but it's not even the most, um, dangerous country, uh, maternal mortality rate, which is Guam, um, it's not dangerous enough to merit lethal force um, because it's just not an imminent threat. And so that that's our that's our partial response, um, but it's not everything that's going to be in our video that we end up releasing in the not so distant future. Yeah, I'm thinking also when that there was a time when the Joker movie was about to come out and I saw someone posting I think it was next door here, mm-hmm. a popular community app. That's not how concerned they were about incels shooting up theaters and things of that sort. Yeah. And uh, I'd said, look, odds are, statistically, you are more likely to die in a car accident in a ma- than in a mass shooting. So that means if you were going to do a movies, it would be more likely you would die on the way there than right. you would die while you were there. Right. So that that's something that comes to my mind with this. So that, that's just my own two cents thrown in. Yeah, thanks. Uh, if anyone has what they think is a um, a good response in addition, uh, email us at info at equal rights um, I, I've, I've, this, is, this is the second time I've talked about this in public. I was on um, Christian Hawkins uh, podcast. He's the leader of Students for Life recently. And I and I mentioned this um, and and we've gotten several people responding, but they think they've got this amazing response so far. We haven't heard anything that that good, but um, maybe your response will be you've got such a smart audience. They're going to like have this like brilliant thing. And if we use it, um, we will absolutely credit you um, because we take um, we we take crediting people very, very seriously. There's a seat of airbar of the Equal Rights Institute for the right answer, right? I'm sorry. There's a seat of airbar of the Equal Rights Institute for the right answer, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's, I also ask about one more objection before I get to something else. That's some people will say, look, I consented to have sex, but I did not consent to get pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the, this is one of those cases where I actually think the best response is basically what Scott Klusendorf does um, with it, which is, so I, I, I think that's not the way this works. This is very effective right now, by the way. I mean, the way that, you know, with the Me Too movement, um, and uh, you know the way 
Uh, I think people are generally our society is doing a better job of thinking about the way sexual consent works than we have in the past. I think that's a good thing. I think there are good things mm -hmm. that have come out of the Me Too movement um, and, 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 and all of that. Um, obviously, there are some bad things, too. Um, but I think uh, like I'm glad that um, I feel like uh, men are more likely now to have an understanding of um, it's, it's more yes means yes than no, than no means no. And, and, and that um, sexual consent can be withdrawn during sex. So it makes a lot of sense that perhaps people would then kind of say, well, that applies to pregnancy too. Um, uh, you, you know, I can consent and maybe at the beginning to being pregnant, but I can withdraw that consent at any point because my body's involved. And I just think pregnancy is a different situation. Um, it's, it's not the way the responsibility works. Um, and I really like the, the, the analogy that Scott Klusendorf wrote in this book, um, where he said, if I'm playing baseball in my backyard with my sons and we're trying to hit the ball straight, and if we hit the ball straight, like there's no problem. It's just like, let's say there's a big field back there. Um, but if, you know, let's say one of the, you know, one of us hits the ball and it goes kind of, you know, directly to the right and it goes over the neighbor's fence and actually breaks our neighbor's window. It would be weird to walk to the neighbor's house, knock on their door and say, hey, I'm sorry. That was our baseball that just went through your window. Well, here's the thing. I consented to play baseball, but I, I didn't consent to break your window. So I'm not going to pay for it. It's like that's not the way responsibility works. Um, I think basically everyone who's having sex knows how pregnancy happens. Um, and that morally matters. Um, we, we know how pregnancy begins. We know there's a risk and we, and generally we know that birth control methods are not perfect. Um, and so you're, you're just, you're taking a risk. There's a thought experiment that, um, um, we've tried to track down who first came up with this. Scott Klusener thinks it was Frank Beckwith, but we're not positive. Um, so let's just say Beckwith probably came up with this. Um, and I came up with a tweak that I'll, that I'll share, but, but, um, I like Beckwith's thought, thought experiment. Um, where he said, imagine there's a room with a baby making machine. So imagine mm -hmm. you've got a room with a big button on this machine. It kind of looks like a Coke machine. There's a big button on it. Um, and there's like a chute at the bottom. So if you push the button, you have a very pleasurable experience. But every once in a while, a baby's going to come out the chute. So everyone understands what's going on here. We've, we've simplified pregnancy. Jeez, <laughs> right? I, I, I don't get it. What are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, so let's assume a man walks up to the machine and he wants the pleasurable experience, but he does not want a baby to come out. He does not want a quiver full, right? Um, and so he pushes them. He kind of rolls the dice, you know, from his perspective. He gambles. Um, he pushes the button. He gets the pleasurable experience. But then, it, sure enough, a baby does come out the chute. It seems really obvious, even to most pro-choice people we talked to about this, that he can't just walk and leave it starved to death. And he certainly can't bash his brains in. Because he pushed the button, and that seems very morally relevant to the situation. Now, some pro-choice people want to say, yeah, but if they are using birth control, then they're trying to not get pregnant, and so they're not responsible now. And so um, my, I think I came up with this. I don't think I heard this from somewhere else. And if I did, someone tell me, but I, I think this is me. Um, I just kind of revised the baby-making machine thing. I said, okay, what if there's a bunch of buttons on this baby making machine um, and they correspond to varying levels of pleasure um, and varying levels of um, 
you know, the odds of a baby coming out. Um, so, like, basically, you can have a button that corresponds to every birth control method. Let's say there's a, there's, you know, functionally a condom button. All right. This is the least pleasurable experience. It's still pleasurable, but it's less pleasurable. Um, but it's like your best chance of a baby not coming out. Let's say you've only got a 1% chance of a baby coming out. Okay. And you've got a birth control pill method. And you've got, like, all these different methods. And some of them have green pros and cons. Even if someone, let's just say someone pushes the condom button. And let's just presume that is the least pleasurable experience and the least likely for a baby to come out. Even if the baby still comes out, which can still happen, we all know that, condoms can fail, then he still can't bash his brains in. Like, I just don't think that solves it for them. Mm -hmm. So that's that's my take on that. Yeah. Well, Josh, we've talked a whole lot about the apologetic side of this. But we're both Christians, so as we get to the final second, let's talk about a different side of this. I am sure there are women listening to this show who sadly have had abortions. And I'm also sadly sure there are men who have coerced, through whatever means, women they know, girlfriends, wives, or anyone else of that sort, to get an abortion. And let's suppose they're listening to this and they're getting convicted and they are having extreme guilt and that's why some some people can have guilt so bad it becomes suicidal guilt even what can you say to these listeners out here um i'm glad you asked i am i am um a deep sinner so Mm -hmm. i'm really glad um that the the cross that makes it possible for my sins to be washed away is uh, the same cross that can wash the sin of abortion away. Um, so, like, I don't think that every sin is equal. Sometimes Christians will say this thing of like, um, they'll, they'll imply that like, like stealing a pencil is equal with murder. That's not my view, and I don't think that was Jesus's view either. He's literally told, um, I think it was Pilate. You know, they who brought me to you, um, they're guilty of the greater sin. Um, so what, what the Christian is trying to say there is that the cross is sufficient to forgive any sin. And one sin is sufficient to separate you from God. Um, but sometimes this comes out awkwardly. And it's like mm-hmm. every sin is equal. Um, but the fact of the matter is... Um, the cross, like Jesus is eager and willing to forgive the sin of abortion at the same level that he's eager and willing to forgive my serious sins. Mm. And yeah. that is really, really good news. And so I would say if you uh, are post-abortive, even if you're a guy who encouraged a girlfriend or your wife to have an abortion in the past and you're feeling guilt, one, you are not alone. This is very, very common. Um, although it doesn't usually happen right away, it usually happens down the road. Um, and there are programs out there, um, to help your local pregnancy resource center probably Mm -hmm. has a Bible study, um, often called forgiveness set free, although there's some other alternatives out there too. Um, there are also some weekend retreat type things, uh, like Rachel's vineyard. Um, sometimes, and sometimes different people, need a more intense weekend experience and some people would prefer a, like a six-week bible study kind of experience mm-hmm. um there are similarities to what they're accomplishing in, in both these cases some people do both um, but i would really want them to get 
to find healing. And, and I think that um, a special kind of, uh, of work um, is often needs to be done with other people who are post-abortive, um, including people who are post-abortive and have gone through the healing themselves and can help walk you yeah. through that. Yeah. So I would want them to find healing. And I'll tell you, um, the final thing I would say about that is um, if you are a Christian and have had an abortion, you are also not, not alone. Um, 36%, 36% of women having abortions went to church that month. Um, there are a lot of abortions in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a certain sense, and I, and I wrote a, an article about this uh, directed at pastors a couple of years ago, because um, I've got this idea of how pastors can reduce abortions in their own congregations. Um, and I said, there's a certain sense where Christian abortions are kind of like the worst abortions. Because a lot of times these are being done by women who do know that this is a person. They do know about Imago Dei, mm-hmm. about the image of God. Um, but they're having it because they are terrified of what will happen in their church or their you know, their community or well with their parents or whatever, their reputation, mm-hmm. if it comes out that they're pregnant. And this isn't going to stay a private sin forever, right? Um, and so then they feel like they've got to go and have an abortion um, and they feel immense guilt right away. Um, I really want those people to find um, forgiveness in, in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So what would you say also to the lady out there who's listening and who is pregnant right now and could be in position, you know, I don't want my parents to know. I'm saying, I, may, I do know I made a mistake. I shouldn't have had sex with my boyfriend or something of that sort. But I'm scared. I don't want to have to talk to my parents. I don't know how I can pay for things. What would you? I mean, you know all the situations. What would you say? I, I would say that there is help out there um, for you. You are not alone. Um, we just um, published a sidewalk counseling course um, for people who stand in front of abortion clinics to help them to do a better job of of um, helping. Um, those women or perhaps their boyfriends even to know that um, um, this isn't the end of their life. Like the, it, it might be different, might not be planned, might be not the way they expected their life to go, um, but uh, they're already a mom or a dad. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and parents have certain special responsibilities um, to to their children to, to not kill them, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so um, I would want you to be able to find out about the resources that are around you. And so go into your local pregnancy resource center where um, these people, everything is free. Um, they will make sure you're really pregnant because uh, some people think they're pregnant. They're not really pregnant. They'll make sure you're really pregnant with a, with a good, um, like a blood test. Um, they can give you often a free ultrasound um, and tell you about the resources that are around you. Um, whether that's government assistance or assistance through them, they, they offer often have like a blood of donations that come in to help people that are in your situation, um, your church. I'm also happy to say that the church in general is getting better at reacting to this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the first books that I write um, is going to be on the church's response to abortion as well as Christian high school's response to abortion, which is uh, often uh, meant well, but not good. Um, and I've interviewed multiple women whose stories I'm going to be telling who their pregnancy in the church happened, you know, let's say 10 years ago or more. And they were like brought up to the front of the church on Sunday morning to apologize to the entire church community for having 
sex outside of marriage. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. the boyfriend is in the pews uh, and no one is saying anything to him. Uh, so there's this weird, like, mm-hmm. sexist or patriarchal thing that was going on there. Um, and just, like, handling it really bad. And this is why a lot of Christian women felt like, I've got to go have an abortion. And luckily, that doesn't happen as often now. Um, the church... Were you jump, did, 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 did you want to jump in about that? I, I, I'm just stunned. I can't believe any church would do something Oh, that, this is a real yeah. thing, and I've talked to these women myself. Um, and, and, but I think it doesn't happen as much now. I think more likely, I think like the church in general, at least modern Protestant churches have generally gone to the other end of the spectrum of like, they're just not talking about it. Um, they don't want to be seen as political. They don't want to um, cause offense to post-abortive people. And, and, but I would want them to know this, that actually doesn't help either. Um, there's a, there's a pro-life pastor's event that happened and my friend David B. Wright was at, and he said, this woman, um, said, you know, I've been sitting in the same spot in the same pew for, I don't remember, 20 or 30 years. And she said, my pastor will talk about everything. He'll talk about sex trafficking and child pornography and all these different things. He just won't ever say the word abortion. And she said, the effect they had on me as someone who's had an abortion was it made me think, okay, if he'll say child pornography, but he won't say the word abortion, then this must be the one unforgivable sin. It's so bad my pastor won't even say the word. Um, and, uh, and, and that, so it had a, an, there was this unintended bad effect. Um, and one of what I want to encourage pastors to do is, and, and if you want to read more about this, go to equalrightsinstitute.com slash pastor, where you'll find a link to the article I wrote about this. I'm telling pastors, I want them to, to, um, pledge that, um, a couple of times a year, they're going to make a quick announcement that just says our church is going to be a safe place for unwed pregnant women doesn't matter what other churches do, like, but here's what's going to happen at our church. We are going to love you. Um, we are going to celebrate life. We're going to celebrate people doing the hard thing. We'll throw you a baby shower. We're going to give you material resources um, to help you. We'll deal with the sin issue in private in whatever way is appropriate in, the, in, that, in, in that denomination. But in public, we're going to celebrate life. We're not going to shun you. This is going to be the scarlet letter P for pregnant. Um, we're not going to let People in the youth group or, or the adults, much less, you know, um, bully you or gossip about you. Like, we're going to stand there with you. Um, and there's already pastors all across the country that are doing that. And I want to get 5,000 pastors to pledge to do that. So if you're a pastor or you know a pastor, go to equalrightsinstitute.com slash pastor. I would love to get more people to um, pledge to do that because then I think there would be fewer abortions in those churches. Because then the women who end up pregnant later after the fact— now she knows that her church is not going to be so scary. Um, it's not, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but at least it's not going to be scary. Um, so so scary, maybe she'll feel like she can, it'll be possible to do this. And sometimes that's all women need to know, is that it'll be possible to do this and that she won't be completely you know, shunned or excommunicated um, for having premarital sex. Okay, we only got a couple of minutes before we start wrapping things up, so here's one final question. What do you think the future holds in our country for us? And what are you hoping, especially like when 2020 comes around? What do you want people to think about at the polls when it comes to abortion? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know what the future has in store. I'm, I am optimistic in the long term because I think the pro-life movement is getting more effective. Anytime mm. that you see 
you know, if something that you're doing is ineffective and you see that it can get better, there's a reason for hope, right? And so, um, the, you know, it, it would be one thing if the pro-life movement had been arguing really effectively for 45 years now. We haven't been. We've been using bad arguments. We've been making them obnoxiously a lot of times um, and, and just doing them in ways that cause first choice people to be automatically defensive and not hear us. And that's something we can get better at. That gives me reason for hope. Every time I speak at the Students for Life conference, uh, it was basically every year, I'm speaking to like 3,000 um, young pro-life people and they're smart and they are passionate um, and I think they're going to take over the movement one day. And I'm excited for that because I think um, they are interested in learning what has worked from the past. Like they don't usually want to just throw everything out. They want they don't they don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No pun intended. No pun intended. Um, but they also want to learn from mistakes from our previous generations. Like what is not working anymore? And that's part of what I'm trying to spearhead. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Um, and, but I think it's going to take a while. I don't think abortion is going to end, you know, in 2020. Um, it's going to take a while. Our culture is, um, a generally pro-choice culture, um, meaning the majority of people think abortion should at least be legal in the first trimester. That's a problem. And so, um, I think we need to get better at talking about this issue. We need to get trained. We need to get equipped. This is why you and me, I'm sure, have this in common. We love apologetics because mm -hmm. we want to be ready for those conversations. And um, God's going to prepare you for such a time as this so that, you know, hopefully when your approach's friend is asking you about the issue, you're ready to have a good answer. Um, and mm -hmm. if you're not ready to answer those hard questions, like what, a, what about abortion in the case of rape? What if her life's at risk? Do you, do you think women should die in back alleys if if you get your way and abortion becomes illegal, like if you're not ready to answer those questions or to answer, you know, what do you think about the violinist case? Like you need to get equipped and we mm -hmm. have an online course for this. You know, this is why we created an online course called Equipped for Life mm -hmm. to help people mm -hmm. um, all over the place, even the people that we can't physically get to, you know, at a speech mm -hmm. or whatever, to get equipped um, to have those conversations. So get ready um, and get involved. Try to figure out um, if you're feeling like you want to be involved in the pro-life movement, and not everyone is, I don't think God is no. calling every Christian to be active in the pro-life movement. I yeah. used to think that, and I don't think that anymore. Uh, because yeah. I think God gives people sometimes a special calling for other things. Like sometimes, I, I know some people who are called to be fighting human trafficking, and I am not going to give them a hard time for not donating to pro-life groups or whatever, you know? <laughs> Um, so got and my passion is historical Jesus. Yeah, research. exactly. And that's awesome because that's one of the, I think the most convincing, uh, arguments for Christianity to most young atheists today. I think it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the like the, the, the minimal facts case, I think is, is huge. And, and so anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Nick. And so, mm -hmm. but if you're feeling called to be in the pro-life movement, try to figure out what are you good yeah. at? What are you passionate about? What, what should your lane be? And, if you're interested in trying to figure that out, um, reach out because that's also a project mm -hmm. that I'm working on behind the scenes of trying to help pro-life people to figure out um, how they could best serve um, this movement and help our culture get to a place where we can make this thing um, illegal. Mm -hmm. And if not illegal, at least unthinkable.
Well, we've got to start wrapping things up here. Josh, do you have a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yes. So um, we've got a blog. If you go to the equalrightsinstitute.com website, you can kind of find links to the blog. We've got two podcasts. Um, we've got a couple hundred articles on, on the blog. So there's a lot there. We also have two online courses. So if people want a more systematic approach um, to both pro-life apologetics or sidewalk counseling, um, we have, we have um, courses for that. Um, but we have a lot of material out there. And if people wanted to email uh, me, you can email, email me at info at equalrightsinstitute.com. Um, and of course, if you want to support our ministry, uh, we can, we desperately need that too. And, uh, and so you can do that um, there as well. And just thanks so much for having me, Nick. This was fun. You ask fantastic questions, um, which is exactly what I expected from someone um, who has um, all the endorsements that you do on your website from a lot of the Christian, uh, the great Christian apologists of today. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters audience? Um, yeah, um, I think what I would tell you is um, that when we have conversations about abortion, I think something like 80% of the persuasive stuff going on is not in the arguments you make, but the way you treat them. Um, and so this is why we talk about practical dialogue tips a lot, things like body language, um, things like what kinds of questions you should ask, what kinds of questions you should not ask, um, how to bring a lot of clarity to the conversation. Like all those things are all geared towards helping people to feel receptive and not defensive. Because if they're not receptive, they can't hear the great arguments you're making. doesn't matter how good the argument is. They can't hear you. They can't hear you. Um, and so... We're interested in trying to help people um, just generally have good conversations about anything. So our practical dialogue tip stuff will help you even have good arguments or, or conversations or dialogues about Christianity or evolution or, or anything that you're wanting to have. Um, but pay extra attention to that, not just the arguments you're learning, because um, a lot of the time it's the way you treat them that makes the biggest difference. When you learn how to be a more loving movement, not just a more intelligent movement. Yeah, the quota, Ravi Zacharias, once you cut off a person's nose, there's no point giving them the rose to smell. Yes, I agree with that. Well, Josh, it's been great having you back on. I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. If that new book comes out sometime, you're welcome to come back on here and talk about it. I would love that. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. God bless. And I can mind when next week we're going to have Michael Jones on from Culture War talking about abortion. For now, I'm Nick Peters. I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off.